Well, friends, we have left. This morning we leave a Saul behind. Last week we spoke of Saul and his powerful conversion on the road to Damascus. And uh, Paul has uh, now uh, gone to Antioch. Remember, he had to flee Damascus. And he's gone to Antioch. And he is now busy uh, preaching the Christ, the very Christ that he had uh, worked so hard to destroy. But now he is preaching Christ there. And you can see that in Acts 9 and verse 22. That Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. That was the great truth that God had revealed to him on the way to Damascus. That Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the man Jesus who had been crucified, that man was the Messiah King that the Jews had long been expecting and looking for. But this morning, uh, we leave Paul behind in Antioch. And we turn to another one of the apostles, and that is the Apostle Peter. And that is the focus of the sermon this morning. You know, my friends, that the great question at this time in the early church, in this church, the great question is what to do with the Gentiles? What is the status of the Gentiles in the Christian church? Is there an open door for them to come in? Do they belong in the kingdom of God? Or... Do they have to become proselytes? Do they have to adopt the Jewish religion and all its rituals and all its rites? Especially the rite of circumcision, the rite of Sabbath observance, right? Saturday Sabbath observance. What is the status of these Gentile people? Now you also have to keep in mind here the theme. Remember we said this in the very first sermon that we preached on the book of Acts, that the theme of Acts, the, the connecting thread that ties all this book together, is Acts 1 verse 8. Recall that Jesus says to disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, right? That happened on the day of Pentecost, Jerusalem, and in all Judea. Now that we saw also, right? Because when Saul began persecuting the Christians, they all fled and the gospel came to Judea. Samaria, that was Philip. Remember Philip? Philip had gone to Samaria Right? And he had done uh, tremendous evangelistic work. And God had blessed that work mightily in Samaria. But now, the last part of this uh, verse, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Even to the remotest part of the earth. And now, my friends, we come to uh, the fulfillment then of that part of the theme of the book of Acts. How will the gospel get to the remotest parts of the earth? And you might say the seeds for that were already planted in the, in the stoning of Stephen, right? Because already there, God had set apart a man who was watching the garments as they stoned Stephen to death. And that man was already being prepared by God's sovereign grace to be the voice of God to the Gentile nations. Well, God is going to reveal first to Peter. Well, I shouldn't say first, but God is going to reveal now to the Jewish, or to the leadership of the Christian church. And again, we always have to keep this in mind, and I know it's, it's difficult sometimes to always keep this in your mind, right? That all the Christians at this point are Jews. Now that's beginning to crack a little bit, right? Because of course the eunuch had been baptized. He wasn't a Jew. But by and large, the vast majority of all the Christians are Jews. And my friends, that means they continue to practice the rites, the rituals, the ceremonies of the Jewish religion. 
in all respects, they have not given up their Jewish religion, right? They have just come to the point where now they recognize that Christ is the Messiah King for, which they've been, for whom they've been waiting. Now, that brings us then to the Apostle Peter. And it's interesting to me, my friends, that it seems as though God has given more light on this question to Philip, because remember, he went to Samaria, not, not Jewish people, and, and of course the eunuch, but also to, to, uh, to, uh, to Stephen. It seems that God has given more light to these deacons in terms of this question of Gentile inclusion in the Christian church than he has even to the apostles. But now that's going to change, right? Now God is going to speak to the leader of the apostles, Peter himself. And God is going to open his eyes to see this question correctly. So that turns our attention then to Peter. Now, we've already talked about Peter being in Jerusalem. He's been at the head of the apostles in every single one of these events that has taken place. Remember that when the Pentecost was being ridiculed, it was Peter who stood up, right? And said, no, this is just a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. But it was Peter who stood up and defended the church at that time. You'll remember that when they were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin after the lame man had been healed. Again, remember it was Peter who stood up and spoke in defense of the apostles. Then you'll remember that when Ananias and Sapphira tried to pull their trick. It was Peter, right, who exposed their fraud and brought down God's judgment upon them. Then there was, after the death of Ananias and Sapphira, there was many miracles. Remember, even Peter's shadow would heal people. And again, they were arrested. This time they were beaten. But again, it was Peter who gave the defense before the Sanhedrin. But all that took place in Jerusalem, didn't it? All that took place in Jerusalem. But now we're going to have God, who, uh, we're going to see how God in his providence sends Peter out of Jerusalem. And for a very important reason. Now, the occasion is this. You'll remember that in Acts 8, Philip has gone to Samaria. Many of the people are fleeing the persecution that Saul himself has begun. Philip ends up in Samaria and he preaches there. He does miracles there. God abundantly blesses his ministry. Many people are coming to Christ. And then we read in Acts 8 and verse 14 that when the apostles heard about this, Acts 8 and verse 14, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So the apostles in Jerusalem feel that it's time now to send Peter and John to Samaria to investigate this work, what's happening there, and to ensure that everything is done in order, that the truth is being preached, and that these Christians are being really, truly, and soundly converted. So Peter and John go there. You'll remember that Peter and John also have uh, the responsibility, not the responsibility, but the privilege, I should say, of bringing the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? That these people also might receive the Holy Spirit, not in order to be saved, they are already saved, right? They've already believed in Christ, but to receive the gift of the Spirit, these ordinary and these extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, which were so plentiful in those times. At any rate, now Peter and John are out of Jerusalem. They are out of Jerusalem because they are in Samaria. Now, what happens to John at this point, we're not told. But we are told what happens to Peter because, again, if we turn to Acts 9 and we go to Acts 9 and verse 32... This is what we started reading. This was the start of our reading this morning. 
it says, now as Peter was traveling through all those regions. Evidently, my friends, Peter did not go back to Jerusalem. You follow me now? Peter did not go back to Jerusalem, right? He went from Jerusalem to Samaria. But after his work was finished in Samaria, he evidently began to travel about the countryside. He did not go back to Jerusalem. Now that makes sense to us, uh, partly because we know that a persecution is taking place in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. But for whatever reason, that seems to be the most likely, he does not go back to Jerusalem. But we're simply told in Acts 9 and verse 32 that he travels about these regions. And he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So notice that there's already Christians at Lydda. There's already Christians at Joppa. And now Peter, as he begins to travel out of Samaria, and he comes to these different villages. He comes to these different cities. And here comes Peter. He walks into the city. And you can imagine that the church was very excited to receive him. But Peter begins to look. And here are the Christians gathered before him. Perhaps he was going to teach them. Perhaps he was going to preach to them. Perhaps he was going to administer the sacrament of some kind. But Peter can't help but notice. Who are these people over here? I see Jewish people over here, but, but these people over here, I see Gentiles. In fact, I see Gentiles mixed. Now, how he would have known that, I don't know. But certainly it would have come to his attention that there were Gentiles in the audience. And this brings this question all the more to his mind. What is to be done with these people? It's burning in his mind already. But as he travels from place to place, he sees Gentiles worshiping the Lord. Right alongside the Jewish Christians. In fact, if you look at Acts 9 and verse 35, notice the language here. I think this is intentional. Acts 9 and verse 35. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now, of course, all there doesn't mean every single person in Lydda and Sharon, right? We know the Bible often speaks colloquially, right? Uh, all means a great number. But it certainly must mean, my friends, that a great deal of the population of these cities had come to Christ, Gentiles and Jew alike. We have similar language in Acts 9 and 42. Acts 9 and 42, it became known, that is the, the healing of, of Dorcas, became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So these Gentiles and Jews alike are coming. Peter is seeing this as he goes from village to village. And again, his mind must begin to turn. Remember how we spoke last week about these goads, right? Jesus said to Paul when he appeared to him on the way to Damascus, Paul, it's difficult for you to kick against the goads or these pricks, right? These, these, these voices that you're hearing and these thoughts that you're having, right? It's difficult for you to resist them, to kick against them. Now, I think Peter has a similar experience, doesn't he? And the goad or the, the prick for Peter, right, is these different towns where he sees these Gentiles worshiping right alongside the Jewish Christians. Well, let's think then about Peter's thinking. Peter's thinking. Peter undoubtedly has opportunities to preach at these different cities where he comes. Now, in the first place, I would say that the manner, this is the second point on my outline there, the manner is different than Paul, right? Paul was very violently brought to see the truth that Jesus is Lord. Now, Peter is dealing with a slightly different question, right? Peter already understands that Jesus is Lord. But Peter is understanding 
is, his theology, you might say, is being very greatly challenged by this question of what to do with the Gentiles. But in the same way, God is poking at Peter and bringing him slowly to understand the truth. Now, there are already signs. Well, let me, let me deal with this then. So in the outline, I put with one hand and with the other hand. Imagine that Peter, as he preaches and as he teaches in, in these different towns, and of course, you know, when Peter came to a town, of course they would want to hear him speak, right? They would want, to, want him to teach them. Somebody like Peter would, of course, be asked to, to preach and to speak. And you can imagine that in Peter's mind, he would think to himself, why would I announce to these people that salvation is in Christ alone? That all the forgiveness of sins that you need and desire are found in the blood of Christ alone. He is the great sin offering that was put to death for the sins of his people. And salvation is in him alone. While with the other hand, I would say, and if you want to be a Christian, if you want to know God really and truly, you have to become a Jew. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep all these Jewish laws and rites and rituals. Peter, that's a contradiction. Salvation is in Christ alone. Now come forward and be circumcised and keep Sabbath and eat the unclean. Don't eat any unclean foods. And one hand and the other hand. I've got to believe that Peter felt the power of that contradiction. That doesn't make sense. And as Peter meets these Gentile Christians who very sincerely have come to Christ, you can imagine that they must have come to him. Peter, I, I, I was never raised a Jew. I'm not circumcised. I, I don't keep Sabbath. I, I don't even know the difference between a clean and unclean foods. Do, do I need to be checking all those boxes too? You can, you can imagine that Peter's, Peter's heart must have been like, well, no, Christ is, is sufficient. Nothing else is needed. You need to add nothing to Christ. But yet his mind right, would say, well, what about the law that God gave us on Mount Sinai, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus? Certainly, these, this is God's law. It must be observed and kept, right? So there's this, this conflict in the mind of Peter. But, my friends, let me say this. There is good evidence already that Peter's mind is beginning to change on this issue. That you might say these pricks, these goads that are poking at Peter in his mind are beginning to crack up his system, his way of thinking, his old way of Jewish thinking. Why do I say that? Well, look at Acts 9 and verse 39. Let's not miss this detail. When Peter comes to Joppa, they brought him into the upper room. Who's in that upper room? Well, the body of Dorcas. She passed away. She's in that upper room. No Jewish person may go into even a house where there is a dead person. And I gave you that verse from Numbers 19 on the outline there. This is the law when a man dies in a tent or a house. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Now, of course, sometimes the Jewish people had to go into a house where there was a person, right? But you wouldn't do it unless you absolutely had to. You, you just wouldn't choose to go into a house because you'd be unclean for seven days. And you'd be barred access to the temple of God. And yet Peter goes, I mean, apparently from the text here, without any hesitation. He goes right up into the room. Didn't Peter know? That's ridiculous, isn't it? Peter knew the Old Testament law better than anyone, probably. And yet he, he goes right up to the upper room without hesitation. Furthermore, in verse 43, 
we're told that he takes her hand. Now, my friends, if it's one thing, bad enough to go into the house where there's a dead person, but to take the hand of a dead person, right, is even worse. Now, of course, at that time, she's being made alive, right? She's, she's been brought back to life, and he's helping her to her feet, but she had been dead. At any rate, I think you see that Peter is already getting, he's already beginning to separate, or how do I say this, loosening himself, isn't he? from these Jewish laws of purity and impurity. He seems to have less concern for them already. Now there's another, there's another reason, even more clear, and that is my third point, Peter and the tanner. Now again, my friends, try to think carefully, what is a tanner? A tanner is a person who takes animal skins, right, and makes them into leather, usable leather, right, that you could make a clothing, shoes, gloves, all sorts of things, right, from the leather. So what is a tanner, right? A tanner is continually unclean because he's constantly touching dead carcasses of animals. That's his job. That's all he does is touch the carcasses of dead animals. Some of those animals were clean. Some of them were unclean. So a tanner, you might say, was, was the worst possible occupation a Jewish person could ever have. In fact, many of them would, would turn far from it. They wanted nothing to do with it. Jewish law said that if there's a tanner in the city, he's got to be on the very edge of the city. For one thing, the, the whole process of tanning those hides made a terrific odor. The smell was awful. And so they made it clear that you, you, you tanners have to be on the outskirts of the city. We want you far away from us. We don't want to smell that, right? But also the uncleanness of it. You might say that this, this man... Uh, Simon the Tanner was a man excluded. Remember, we used that uh, a lot when we were speaking about the eunuch and the Christians in Philadelphia. Remember, the Gentile Christians in Philadelphia were people that were excluded. But now this Tanner is another one. He's a man who is forced to live on the outskirts of town. He's reject rejected by the Jewish people. Uh, one, one source I read said that uh, the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership had a law that the Shema, right, the... Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Shema should not be repeated or recited when you're standing next to a chamber pot or a toilet, right? Nor should you enter a bath or a tannery with scrolls or phylacteries in hand. In other words, copies of the, of the Torah, right? The, the scripture, the Jewish scriptures. So they're literally putting a, a tanner like on the level of a toilet, right? You can see how, how despised these tanners were this man excluded in a perpetual state of uncleanness. And now, my friends, this is the man where Peter stays. How is it possible? How is it possible that Peter, the leader of the Christian church at this time, a man thoroughly steeped in Jewish tradition and ritual, is now staying at the house of a tanner? It's amazing. Again, we have to believe that already Peter's, Peter's understanding of the Jewish ritual system is beginning to crack up. And he's beginning to let it go. Well, finally, Peter has his Damascus Road experience. Peter's experience on the roof of the house of this man, and you see this given to us so powerfully in Acts chapter 10. Notice the beginning, that after this vision, in verse 17, Acts 10 and verse 17, now while Peter was greatly perplexed, Again, Peter does not have clarity yet. He just had this vision. 
God has says, don't you call unclean what I have cleansed. Peter is greatly perplexed about this. That seems very clear to us, doesn't it? Like, how's that difficult to understand, Peter? But we weren't raised as Jews, were we? Again, this system is so rooted in Peter's DNA, as it were. Peter is greatly perplexed. We're so happy to read at the end of this chapter, right? In, and this is our text, right? Acts 10, verse 34. After God has explained and further helped him to understand this, Peter says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Finally, God in his love and in his mercy has brought Peter to this point where now he understands that God is not one to show partiality. And the vision itself is given us in Acts 10, where Peter, when he feels these pains of hunger, right, and he, it's time to eat, and down comes this sheet loaded with animals, both clean and unclean animals, right? And Peter says, no, Lord, I cannot eat these animals because there's unclean animals amongst them. And then comes that astounding thing, uh, pronoun uh, uh, pronouncement from God himself. Don't you call unclean what I have cleansed. That's remarkable, isn't it? Don't you call unclean what I have cleansed. My friends, I would call that then a leading article of the constitution of the kingdom of God. You know, children, right? We have a constitution in this country, right? The Constitution of the United States? Well, the Kingdom of God has a Constitution. And one of the leading articles of that Constitution is this. Uh, in verse 34. God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Every man. The constitution of the kingdom of God, my friends, says that whoever you may be, that if you desire sincerely to know God and to do what is right, you are welcome to him. Now, I can see everybody in this church is like, yeah, we, we already know that. But my friends, what about Peter? Again, it, it comes so easy to us. We were taught this in, in Sunday school, right? What's the Sunday school song that I used to learn, right, uh, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but uh, red, yellow, black, white, all are welcome in his sight or something like that, right? Remember that? Remember that song we all learned, right? We learned that from our youngest days. But my friends, to put yourself in the shoes of Peter and how difficult a truth that must have been to grasp. That you don't have to become a Jew to, be a, to, be, to come to God, to have to access to God. You can come as you are. And as long as you desire to do what is right, and as long as you desire to know God sincerely, you are welcome to him. It makes me think of that book that John Bunyan wrote. It has such a beautiful title, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. He wrote a book, a beautiful book, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And so we see uh, this glorious truth that I believe God had already revealed to Philip. Because Philip baptized the eunuch without hesitation. But now God makes it clear to Peter that every man is welcome to God. And the old Jewish ritual system has come to an end. Now later, Peter would learn, right, how that system came to an end. That in Jesus Christ, he fulfilled all those ceremonies and all those rituals. And therefore, they've come to an end. 
And so when the, when the, when the uh, fulfillment has come, the reality, Jesus Christ, then all the pictures, all the types, all the signs that pointed to him, go away. That was a difficult lesson for Peter to learn. But we see how God in his grace brought him to that point. Well, my friends, I come then to my points of application here. And first of all, the difficulty. The difficulty, my friends, of being, of, of constantly bringing our ideas and our thinking, our theology to the text of Scripture. What a difficult thing that is for us. To be our own critic. We all have a story, right? We all were raised in a certain tradition. We all were raised a certain way. Some, some of you may not have been raised with any Christianity. Some of you have may have been raised in this style of a Christian church or that style of a Christian church. And I think most of us here were raised in a Reformed church. And yet, my friends, in the Reformed churches, we have a tradition too. And that tradition teaches us, let me say it in Latin, semper reformanda. Semper reformanda. Semper always and reformanda reforming. Now, it doesn't mean always changing, but it does mean that every generation of Christian people must bring their thinking to the bar of God's word, to, the, to, to, let, to, to let God's word judge our thinking. This is one of the traditions handed down to us from our fathers, that the word of God stands in an exclusive place of authority in our circles. And therefore, my friends, this has to mark all of our thinking. Now, again, semper reformanda does not mean always changing. It doesn't mean that every generation we change, you know, these things, how, how, how things work and whatnot. But it does mean, right, that we be our own critic, that we bring our thinking to the word of God. <clears throat> and what a need for balance there is here, isn't there? Because, again, uh, we see so much Christianity today that is always changing. The, 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 the style of the, of the service changes uh, the, and things change, and, uh, and even from Sunday to Sunday. And I, and I think sometimes there's an extreme that way too, where we take all of the traditions that we grow up with, and we just throw them out. We have no respect for them whatsoever. I think that's a danger to be avoided, right? But on the other hand, right, is that we start to elevate our traditions to the level of Scripture. And here, my friends, Peter preaches to us this morning, right? That all of our thinking has to be brought to the Word of God. Don't you call unclean. What God has cleansed. God taught that to Peter. And in our own generation, my friends, we also have to be willing to bring our worship, to bring our theology to the standard of Scripture. And not to fall off the road on either side, right? To be always changing and always throwing things out. But also, of course, on the, on the far side, we have the Roman Catholic Church, right? Which has explicitly then really elevated their tradition to the level of Scripture. I quoted there from the Belgic Confession, my friends. This is one of the confessional statements that we have in this church. And I'm not going to be shy to say we're very proud of this statement. We boast of this. In Belgic Confession, Article 7, Therefore we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put, and then listen to this list, my friends. This is a good list. Nor may we put custom. The majority, age, the passage of time or persons, councils, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. That is the ground we take 
in this church, my friends. That's the rock we stand on in terms of our thinking and our theology. And we are taught that this morning from Peter himself, right? If Peter were standing here, he would tell us how difficult it was for him to come to this place, to come to see this truth and to accept it. It was difficult. It was hard for him. But again, God brought him to understand the scripture and to understand it correctly. My last point of application, my friends, is again, we see another example. If you're here with us, uh, if you weren't here with the previous times, in previous sermons, we had a sermon on the eunuch, a man who is excluded from the kingdom of God because of his being a Gentile and because of his being a eunuch. We also had a sermon on Philadelphia, right? The letter to the church of Philadelphia that those Gentile Christians were excluded. And now we have another example. And I can't help but think to myself, we're not told if the tanner became a Christian, but I have no doubt that Peter spoke with him. And I can, I can, I can, I can speculate, my friends, that the tanner would have said, can I go to God with all my filth, with all this smell, with all these dead carcasses of these animals laying here? And I'm touching them every day. I got my hands thick with the blood of beasts and hair from their hides. And I can hear Peter saying, Tanner, Simon, listen. Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I can hear Simon come back and saying, yes, but I'm unclean. I'm always unclean. I can't go into the temple of God. I'm in a perpetual state of uncleanness. And I can hear Peter saying, Jesus told me, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I wonder how Simon would have heard those words. And I can think of Simon continuing and saying, but what the, about the sin that I've committed in my life? As a Gentile person, I've committed sins without number. And I can think I hear Peter say, Simon, sit down. I have a story to tell you. There was a night when my Savior was arrested and taken before the judgment seat of Caiaphas. And I stood in that courtyard and I swore an oath that I did not know that man. And Christ came back to me and he forgave me. And he took me back to himself. And he sent me to preach the gospel that saved me. And the gospel that can save you. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief. I think that, my friends, that might have been something like the conversation. That took place between Peter and that tanner. And I pray to God that we might all see that tanner one day in heaven. And my friends, we all stand before God on the same ground this morning. We all stand before God on the same ground. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we never can get above that. I pray that God will bless these words to us. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you this morning rejoicing in the power of the gospel that took a eunuch that took the Gentiles in Philadelphia and that took also this man, Simon the Tanner. We pray, O Lord, that it might also take us. We who have been excluded because our sins have blocked our access to you. But the Lord Jesus Christ has shed his blood so that we might come into your presence without fear, 
and with a promise that when we come to you, we shall surely have all our sins forgiven us for the sake of that one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Lord, having been forgiven, I pray that you would give us also the humility and the wisdom to understand your word and to always bring our thinking and our theology to the teaching of Scripture and to always be ready to be reformed by it and to acknowledge, Lord, with the fathers of the Reformed churches that truth is above everything else and that we long to know the truth and to take hold of that truth. Lord, bless us and bless all who have gathered with us this morning. Lift us up to where you sit on high. Grant that our affections might dwell above where Christ sits at your right hand. And that we might love the Lord Jesus Christ and serve him and follow him all the days of our life. And all this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn now on the red hymnal to number 273. Number 273, we'll sing the four verses. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou didst break the loaves beside the sea. Throughout the sacred page I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. The four verses of 273 in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.